from Evanston, Illinois, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Phil Beverly, a Democrat, Libertarian Brian Lambrecht, Republican C. Stephen Tucker, and also community activist T.O. Hardeman and Chicago Alderman Raymond Lopez and talk show host and conservative Stephanie Trussell. Those are the guests this evening. Good evening, everyone. I'm Bruce Dumont. Welcome to our new home flagship home at uh, beautiful LTD at uh, beautiful WCGO in Evanston, Illinois. And again, it's great to be with you this evening. A couple of things, a note at the top. First of all, uh, I understand because of technical reasons, we will not be able to take telephone calls this evening. And also, our live Facebook feed is also somewhat technically challenged tonight. You may be able to get it there, uh, but it may be a problem. And again, if you usually uh, listen to this program or watch it on YouTube, again, uh, we are not doing YouTube live tonight. That'll be delayed by a couple of hours. However, if you're listening to us on radio, uh, we're here. And again, uh, if you want to comment, you can also go to our Facebook page and you can send me notes and we will engage our guests uh, that way. Uh, Again, let's get to our discussion right now. Again, the president is finishing up his uh, coronavirus task force, so there may be things that he is saying that you know more about than I do right at the moment because we're sort of opposite the president, or he's opposite beyond the beltway. How how dare him? But again, uh, let me welcome our guests. We have Philip Beverly. Uh, He's our Democrat in our number one. Brian Lambrecht is our Libertarian, and our Republican is C. Stephen Tucker. Gentlemen, let me begin with you, uh, uh, Phil Beverly. Uh, I think everyone on this uh, call this evening or this video tonight uh, is frustrated about something. Uh, Give me the short version of what you are most frustrated about right now, uh, given the the coronavirus. Um, Probably this idea that people are prisoners in their own homes because of some nefarious plot by the state to deprive them of liberty. It happens to be a pandemic and lots of us are at risk. Okay, Brian Lambrick, you're the libertarian. Uh, is anything frustrating you now or everything? Uh, everything. I'm actually uh, annoyed about the exact same thing that Phil is saying we don't need to be annoyed about when a married couple is being threatened with a citation from a New York City police officer for not being six feet apart. I think that's something that's you know a little bit troubling, a little bit paranoid. I think people have a right to be upset about that. Stephen Tucker. Uh, I think that there is a fine line between protecting people against this virus and usurping their natural rights. And we have seen too many times, especially the governor of Michigan, our own governor here in Illinois and in New York and other blue states where governors have gone over that line. It's a fine balance you have to follow. Do you, Phil oh, Beverly, believe... Oh, so far, they failed in those states, in my okay. opinion. The, the opposition to the president and many media critics have basically said, it's the science, it's the science, over and over again. Do you feel that uh, Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci have had significant influence over the president? So when these recent uh, phase one, phase two, phase three, uh, let's get back to normal, uh, dictates have come from the federal government, that there has been sufficient scientific 
input and 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 acceptance by the president. Yes or no? No, I, I don't think so. I don't think with this back to normal by May first thing, I think flies in the face of science as we haven't flattened the curve yet, and we, we have to do that. What about the what about the what about the what about the specific but, you know, recommendation? Let's, no, let's understand this thing, Phil. But what what about the specific recommendations? Uh, the, 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 the benchmarks that, that allegedly have to be followed by governors before they move into, into the next uh, phase of, of, of a renewal. I mean, it, it, aren't they pretty clear? I think they're, they're as clear as, as we know, based on the limited amount of information we have around testing. Testing is still the critical missing link here. We don't know what infection rates are if maybe we've already developed herd immunity because people contracted stuff back in December and January and had no idea about it. But until you test more than 1% of the population, you're not going to know. So whatever you're coming up with is really a, a scientific guess. Do you think so, uh, Stephen? Is it a guess? Um, I, I think there are natural risks inherent to living life. Car accidents, every kind of injury, any any kind of risk you take just by existing. But the longer that we put businesses in this country in a position where they cannot provide themselves, and they are instead reliant upon the federal government, we have 68% of those who applied for the PPP relief for their employees to keep them on the payrolls mm -hmm. who are still waiting for that money to come through. We have Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats on the congressional level stopping future funding. They're still arguing right now. And yet there are friends on the left want to put that kind of organization, the federal government, in charge of our health care, which I think this is a perfect example of why we should never even consider doing such a thing. Uh, Brian Lampert, go ahead to you. I, I want to ask you the question about uh, testing. Uh, is it clear to you what, what testing is all about? What, what is testing? What kind of testing? We're not hearing you, Brian. Whatever you're doing, there we go. It's nothing. We're not. We're Can you not hear me now? Suppressing yes, yes. your libertarian perspectives. Okay. Go ahead. I think somebody had me on mute, but I've, I've been taken off. Uh, the question is: You brought up earlier about the science behind it, and then you asked about the policy. And the big problem is that the science and the policy are not the same thing. I don't even think they're necessarily jiving. And when you're again talking about government, my biggest critical thing is government. Uh, there were people that were looking into the coronavirus out in Washington. There was a doctor out there in early January that wanted to do testing on this, and the only thing that got in her way from doing the testing was the Center for Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration saying your university's lab is not specifically approved by us we're not going to allow you to do this well they did it anyway and those numbers came really in handy about 30 40 days later when they started looking into it and that's the problem we're not getting enough information nobody anywhere is testing uh, uh the asymptomatic asymptomatic people, people that are that have the virus, but they're not showing symptoms. We don't know enough information about them. We don't know enough information about how it's been transferring. And the testing, because we don't have enough information, we're getting bad policy based off of it. Phil, yes, do, do you understand exactly. what Thank they mean you. when they say testing? Do you personally well, know what they're talking about? What I what I understand testing to be, and I think what the, I'm, I'm going to say this, the, the average American understands to be testing are really two different things. There's the, the, the testing to see if you are infected. You may be asymptomatic or you may be showing symptoms and are, are now 
on the verge of being hospitalized or whatever. And then there's the other testing, the serological testing, which is testing to see if you have antibodies present, meaning you've had it, you've beat it, and now you're past it. And we sort of need to know how many people are really past it. So it's, it's a range of testing to see how you formulate policy, because that dictates what you need to do. If more people have, have antibodies, then we've moved past it Different policy. Um, I want to. I, I got to interrupt. I got to interrupt case. you. We're going to a break, but when I come back, I want to talk to Stephen Tucker, and I want to get your assessment as to whether or not you know what testing really means. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us today. This message is from the National Council on Aging. Adults over age 60 are at higher risk for the COVID-19 coronavirus because they may have weaker immune systems or chronic health conditions. The Centers for Disease Control recommends older adults avoid crowds and people who are sick. Wash your hands and disinfect surfaces often. Keep a two-week supply of food and medicine on hand. Learn more at ncoa.org. A few years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back in Evanston, Illinois. Thank you very much for joining us from coast to coast and border to border. Uh, again, uh, no phone calls this evening because we've got a little a technical problem, and uh, uh, we hope to get that uh, rectified by uh, next week. Uh, but I want to go back to Stephen Tucker, who's uh, one of our card-carrying, I guess our only really card-carrying Republican tonight. Uh, Stephen, I, I had asked you whether or not there that you have clarity as to what it means when the government talks about tests. Also when governors, I mean, the governors are saying they don't have enough tests. The federal government and the president is saying they do have enough tests, but what exactly is a test and can you define it? The test can be done by the nose. Uh, It's it's a form of testing to see if you have had COVID-19 or currently have COVID-19. Uh, now, by the way, let me just interject. That's the that's the one on a long swab that goes way that up so your nose. Common denominator, right? And 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 President yeah. Trump was complaining how difficult that was, uh, but he said that that's one of the ones that's out there. And and go ahead, and then there's the Abbott test. Mm. Yeah, which is not near as invasive as the one that goes all the way back to the back of your throat and into your part of your brain. That's what it right. feels yeah. like. Anyway. So uh, thanks to his incredible private sector, public sector partnership, there are less painful, more efficient ways of getting tests. And you can know in as little as five minutes, again, because of partnering with the private sector. So we're doing this so that we can figure out a denominator and figure out the real death rate of this. Okay, Phil, would you acknowledge that the president's relationship with the private sector uh, has been very positive. That's one of the positive things that maybe this president uh, has done that maybe other presidents could not have done. With the private sector generally or with the large corporations? Because with the large corporations, with the, been no, no, let, 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 let's specifically talk about the large corporations 
Some of, of whom have reacted to of the course. Defense that's, Production that's Act. Some of not. Be a given with Republican presidents because that's okay. their base. Okay, is large corporate America. Have they responded well? I don't. I I think they've responded as they've been asked to respond. Right. So you've got Defense Production Act, and yet it's not being used to produce things in a timely manner. Oh, I'm going to demand GM, large corporation produce ventilators, but GM was already producing ventilators. So help me understand. That was not my understanding. That was not my understanding that they were uh, making ventilators, but I want to bring our libertarian in here. Uh, always interested in your perspective, Brian. I mean, uh, is this in, in, in your uh, life, is this a proper use or is this an abuse by the president of the private sector? Uh, well, it's both. It's an abuse when the president starts using his authority to force companies to do things. And I know people are calling on the president to use his authority, uh, whatever that production act uh, uh, is, in order to force these companies to produce things. Now, I don't I barely trust the president to run a casino. We can't trust the U.S. government to run Veterans Affairs hospitals. Uh, so I don't know why we want to have them in charge of this. I think the private sector businesses are handling this. Uh, on their own because there is, surprise, surprise, a demand for something, and they want to meet that that demand. They want to have goodwill with the public, uh, good standing, and also they have the capabilities to do this. Government doesn't have capabilities. All it has is guns and authority. The do businesses we, are the ones that are going to do this, Bruce. As part of the, the, the daily report that we get from uh, the government uh, or from the president, should we have a an inventory of exactly what tests we have where they are, and how quickly they can be dispersed to the states if the states really need them, and every governor says they do need them. Are you saying that should the government have had this prepared, or should the government no, be transparent no, with no, it? No, no, let, no. Let, let's forget what's in the rearview mirror. We can discuss that, you know, 10 years from now, but literally right now. I mean, if, if I mean, for instance, I have been to the doctor twice. I have asked for a test. On two occasions, uh, even though I have some of the, uh, you know, symptoms that might be susceptible and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm you know, well over 50, uh, you know, the doctor said to me, you, you don't need a test. All right. So maybe I don't need a test. But if I do, if I needed a test, where would I go and what test would I get? And if I walk into a, whatever it is in, in Chicago where I live, will I have the, will I have a test available to me? Or, or even you, you, more importantly, and this is where I said last week, it to me, the, the top priority is making sure that people who are in the healthcare industry, the people who are in daily touch, in touch with, with, with potential patients, they're the ones that should be tested first because the last thing you want is you don't want to walk into a hospital thinking you're going to be saved and, and you're going to run into an orderly or someone that's got uh, a COVID-19. They should be tested first. Yeah, and I wanted to make sure I understood your question properly was my, my point. Okay. Uh, with regarding the testing, uh, well, first of all, if the government has these capabilities, then obviously there should be an inventory and it should be open and accessible to anybody who wants to put in requests for that, specifically the state governors. But to back up a little bit, South Korea, within a matter of weeks, had drive-through testing facilities. People could go in their car and get swabbed in the nose right there to find out if they had it or not, if they needed to quarantine. Here in America, we had companies that were willing to develop these tests, and the CDC had a monopoly on it and was preventing people from doing that for about the first 30, 40 days before they allowed that to be open. If we had 
not lost that precious time, we'd have more businesses, more companies in America, not having to get them from China, making them here, and then we could get them around the country faster. Stephen, is that a fair criticism of, 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 where, the, of where the ball was dropped uh, on our end of the ocean? Yeah, because our, our government... No, no, I want to in- know how much of what you just said, which I think I, I would agree with much of what you just said, I'd like to know... From a Republican perspective, is that a is that a fair criticism? He, he put the blame on the FDA, uh, which is easy to blame. They get blamed for a lot of stuff. Is this a fair criticism of 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 where they, the the bottleneck has been and where it might still be? Yeah, I I wouldn't call the bottleneck. I mean, yesterday, for example, in Chicago at O'Hare Airport. Uh, under the Project Airbridge program. I'm not sure you're familiar with what President Trump is doing, but he's yeah. sending out all of these supplies all over the country, to the, especially to the hot spots like New York and here in Chicago. Just on Friday afternoon, they delivered 7.5 million masks, 1.9 million thermometers, 109,000 stethoscopes, 135,000 cannulas, and they've got 54 more flights planned. 42 federal agencies coordinated under President Trump's leadership have been meeting the needs around this country. 5.5 million emergency protective measures, 55 million N95 respirators, 6 million face shields, 3.8 million samples tested, and almost 11,000 ventilators all over the country. It is remarkable what this president has done and his team. I agree with that, and the president spends a lot of time at his daily briefings mentioning those. Now, here's what I would suggest as a communicator to someone who is communicating a very important message, and frankly, I do compare it with with uh, you know Governor Cuomo's uh, you know rhetorical skills and his presentation skills. I mean, the president will go and rattle these numbers off like you just did, all impressive numbers. But what I want to know is, okay, let's see if there's a hundred and forty thousand or a, you know three million you know masks that are coming to the United States. Where are those three million going? Uh, I mean, how many are going to Illinois, California, Nebraska, or any other state? And it seems to me that there should be a a chart somewhere where you can go, uh, where the public can go, and where media can go to see the distribution of all this equipment. Because, frankly, I'm tired of hearing the president say over and over and over again, look at all these massive numbers. Okay, the, the numbers, I I agree, they're massive. He's doing a great job in getting all that stuff here. But where is it going if you turn on another channel and you've got some governor somewhere complaining to say that he doesn't have masks? Phil Beverly, do you, do you see this? I'm, I'm frustrated at, all, at almost the, the, uh, uh, the inefficiency in the PowerPoint presentation that's being made by the administration uh, in this particular case. I, I'm frustrated by the president sort of um, usurping the the people who are actually doing the work for whatever. And I've heard somebody who was a speechwriter in the Bush White House refer to his, his narcissistic need. Let the other people say what needs to be said. And, you know, it's it's remarkable when the president stays on message reads the notes and stays on the teleprompter, he looks remarkably effective. It's as soon as he deviates that creates this huge distraction. And I think the messaging gets lost in that delivery. I think if he's, he's his own worst enemy in that regard. The other thing that he's not doing is giving some context 
to what those numbers mean. 14,000 people have died in New York City because of COVID-19. In New York City, 14,000. So when, when I'm thinking about numbers of masks and tests and all that, I need to know, is that enough? That's a large number. We've done 3 million tests. That's 1% of the population of the United States. Stephen 1%. Tucker, okay, okay so we've tested 1%. Is that what we need to test in order to get a statistical handle on the scope of this problem? I want to go back to that. I want to go to Stephen Tucker and give an opportunity to respond to your your comments. And I guess my comments as well about uh, uh, the communication um, efforts or the communication skill level may not be up to at least where I would like it to be. Do do you agree or do you think that I'm uh, being overly critical? I I disagree because you have uh, a bunch of participation trophy winners who comprise the White House press corps, uh, who combined have a much as much cerebral power uh, <laughs> as maybe one of us on this panel. And all they do is ask the same question eight times over. They try gotcha questions when they could be asking perfectly intelligent questions like you, Bruce. But the truth is you don't have to ask, to ask those questions. You can go to FEMA's uh, Twitter feed. Uh, Pete Gator, the head of FEMA, FEMA underscore Pete on Twitter. He will tell you where all the supplies are going, how much has been delivered, who's getting them. You can go to the then CDC what I would, website. Then what, I, then what I would say. Then what I would say is let's have let's have let's have Pete Gator at the next. We got to we got to break, folks. Back shortly. Hi, this is Dr. Phil. The new coronavirus called COVID nineteen is spreading in China and beyond. While CDC is working to stop the spread of the virus, we can all play a role in stopping this deadly disease. The CDC Foundation is a nonprofit organization supporting emergency response efforts in the United States and around the world. To get updates and learn how to protect friends and loved ones, find out how to help by going to cdcfoundation.org. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back in Evanston, Illinois. Thank you very much for joining us. This is Beyond the Beltway from coast to coast and border to border and around the world on beyondthebeltway.com. We're now in our 39th year. We've got a big anniversary coming up in June. I have no idea how we're going to celebrate. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be a very small party, I guess. <laughs> but we have a great guest this evening as we have. I mean, we've, we've switched to uh, more guests per Sunday night. We have uh, two hours of a broadcast and one hour with one group of three and the second hour with the, uh, another group of three. In the second hour tonight, we're going to be talking about the impact on uh, uh, on the African-American community, why the uh, the number of deaths are significantly higher in, in that community and has hit that community significantly hard, not only in Chicago but uh, around the country. We'll get some thoughts as to why that might be happening. But I'm going to take a moment now and let each of our guests Give us a little uh, 10, 15-second introduction of who they are and why they are here. And uh, let's begin with our Democrat, Phil Beverly. Phil? Hey, Bruce. I'm a uh, assistant vice provost at University of Illinois at Chicago and also teach 
there in the Honors College and in the Political Science Department. Brian Lembrick. My name is Brian Lambert. I am fiercely independent and liberty-loving, devilishly handsome, and I miss my home in Chicago. <laughs> Where are you calling from? I'm in Nashville right now. You're in Nashville, okay? Well, it's a nice it's a nice place to be and party, but you can't uh, you can't do much partying in Nashville. Been doing a lot of hiking and enjoying the scenery. It is beautiful down here, and the taxes are way lower. It's it's okay. and the weather's great. Okay. I heard you guys just got snow a couple days ago. Yeah, too. Just, oh. just a little bit, but it just reminds us how uh, how great Chicago is. See, Stephen Tucker from uh, suburban Chicago. But Stephen, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, Twenty five years, licensed health insurance broker, uh, principal broker at healthinsurancementors.com, and I do public commentary on healthcare policy. How will this uh, crisis affect the uh, healthcare industry, uh, short term and long term? In your view, uh, Steve, it really depends on what happens after these orders are lifted. Uh, specifically, the the uh, uh, Governor Pritzker's executive orders. He has a series of them. They all need to be either renewed uh, or hopefully. Uh, adjusted in the favor of small business by the 1st of May. So if we have a resurgence of this virus, because more people are now going to be out amongst each other, it's going to put a strain on our hospital systems, our ICU beds. There is one good piece of news that the time it's taken us to shelter in place for what's coming. We have about 347 extra ventilators in, out of all of our ICU beds. We've got 764 ICU beds in Illinois. 825 of them are currently uh, being used for uh, COVID-19 patients. But because of the surplus now that we built up uh, at FEMA, we can ship these ventilators. We've got uh, 30,000 of them extra, or 13,000 extra at FEMA. And they're looking at, thanks to GM and other private sector partners, building as many as 200 do you th do you think thousand ventilators by the end we're, of the we're, year, we're, which can then be used state level? We're, we're running into a little bit of audio uh, glitches uh, with some of your comments, Steve. But I do want to ask this oh. important question: Do you believe Sorry. that um, as the American people deal with with the the new daily routine of their life as it relates to health care, do you think that it is increasing the popularity, the potential popularity? of Medicare for all, or is it taking it in the complete opposite direction? Your thought, and then I want to get Phil to weigh in. Um, I, my answer to that would be Bernie who? At this juncture, it's Bernie who? There's nobody pushing for Medicare for all anymore because the American people are intelligent and they understand, as we have seen right here, you've got all of these people waiting for reliance upon money from the federal government, which is a terrible position to be in. So to put our entire healthcare system in the hands of the federal government is the most dangerous thing you could ever do on a public policy position. So of course that's not uh, that's not happening. Thank Bill Beverly, God. your response to the same question: Has it increased the thirst for a, a, a Medicare for all plan? I, I don't know that it's it's about a Medicare for all. I. Th think that there's some concern amongst people about just having access to health care. And the, the thing about the, this particular pandemic was I didn't expect many people, and that's a relative term, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not discounting a single human life in this, 
but I didn't expect many people to die from this. What I expected was a, an overwhelming uh, crash of the healthcare system because it's not designed for pandemics. We don't have enough ventilators because in a normal day, we don't need that number of ventilators, but we do need to be able to respond when we need to be able to respond. And is our healthcare system nimble enough to do that the way it's currently constructed? And I think that's what people are concerned about. I may not need it every day, but when I need it, I need it and I need it to work. And if that's Medicare for all, great. I don't, I'm not invested in that. It's not. But it's something. I mean, we got to have something where we don't have people who, who are concerned about having access to health care. Brian, what, what is, uh, when it comes to preparation, and in many cases, as Stephen has suggested, and as the White House has suggested, they've got, uh, you know, ventilators coming out their ears right now. Uh, are you confident that uh, we are learning important lessons now? So should this come back in the fall or next year, as, as Anthony Fauci has suggested, we're going to be a lot better off and we're going to know how to respond a lot quicker than, than this time. I'm not sure if government is going to learn as much. I mean, we've seen the president contradict himself three times within one week last week. And and government response is, is getting better. It's getting a little more streamlined. I don't know if government is learning. I think businesses are. And I think some of the governors are because they said originally there was a shortage of ventilators and they needed 30,000, 40,000 in New York City. And now he's got so many of them. He's sending 100 to Michigan, 50 to Maryland, which is good. He's you know sending them around where, where they're needed. Uh, but I think the biggest lesson is being learned by business. I think a lot of people that are now working from home, a lot of businesses may decide after this, hey, we can have more people work from home. Maybe we can get rid of this office space that we're paying for. Uh, Education is going through a whole uh, new cycle where people are, it's it's almost like homeschooling in a way. And I'm a big proponent of homeschooling. But I think think that the rest of the country, every industry is learning in its own way. And none of us are really going to be able to learn all that because it's happening in so many industries at once. But I think over the next six months to a year, we're going to be hearing about what everybody was doing, how they were getting through it. Stephen, your reaction? I, I concur. I think we're going to get some good out of this. And that is a lot of businesses are going to realize the advent of technology like this. Uh, but my biggest hope is that the school systems will understand the value of technology like this. Um, that's probably one of the only good things that come out of this. Other than we will be more prepared on the state level and on the federal level. And we've showing this now. We have all these extra ventilators in place, ready to go. This is all because, again, of a public-private uh, partnership coordinated by President Trump. But the public is getting frustrated. At least the, the public in some states, they're getting frustrated with their governors because they think things are a little bit too tough there. Uh, where do you come down on on the frustration that exists in the in the streets? Uh, to to rise up against the governors. Phil Beverly? Yeah, I think that's really dangerous when when you say, oh, liberate yourself, the lawful orders of your duly elected officials. I think that that's just ridiculous, and it's unconscionable that that this president would do something as inane as that. Because if I said the same thing, oh, rise up against the federal oppressor and uh, uh, go kill the president and overthrow him, I would look, I would be insane. So, so why would you say that the other way to a governor? We have a, a rule of law system, and you may not like it. I don't like that Donald Trump's the president, and he's the president. 
That's just the way it is. You may not like that, that Governor Whitmer's the governor, and she's the governor. Get over it and act like a responsible citizen. Brian? We have a constitution, Phil. We have a constitution. We have inalienable rights that came before the constitution and before the Bill of Rights. And Whitmer is an idiot, overreaching, not allowing people to plant, buy seeds. And by the way, in this state, we can get as many as we want with legal marijuana, but we can't gather together in a church to worship, which, by the way, is an inalienable right. So don't tell me about this. You know, you, you, you should you want to kill the president. You want to revolt and against so, the government. And so here's the collision of your right to go do what you want to do. When it bumps up against my health and safety, I'm going to say to you, uh, no, not so much. And you don't like that? I get it. I get it. Try to be in the position of the other person. I have not physically been in contact with my parents who live two miles from me for the last six weeks. Because they're 80 years old and I could be asymptomatic with COVID-19. I'm at risk knowingly because of some belief that I have. These lives are more important than, than what I want. Putting somebody ahead okay. of yourself. Sometimes it's the most selfless act. Phil, I want to yield the floor uh, to Brian Lambrick to, to weigh in on uh, what's happening in some states who are, ra- are, who are raising up or, or they're, 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 they're protesting against some governors. Oh, oh I've, been waiting, I've been waiting all hour to talk about this. Okay, first, of all, doing, right. well, first of all, what the governors are doing is sort of following President Trump's orders. So in the president... Something just tickles me about the president of the United States telling people to liberate themselves from his own orders. Yeah. But to get into the governors, there is very reasonable things people can do. And a lot of the social distancing, uh, Sweden is doing it. They flattened their curve already and they didn't shut down gyms or restaurants or, or the schools at all. Yes. They did it by simply putting the information out there and promoting it. But to talk um, really quick to what Phil said about, about these things, why does the governor of, Min- of um, Michigan need to make it illegal to buy paint? You can go to the store, you just can't get a paint can. Why Why? Why is a married couple in New York City getting threatened with a ticket for being uh, more than six feet or less than six feet apart? These a are good. in Pennsylvania these are, gets pulled over folks, and gets these a are ticket good, these are for good. being okay. outside of her house. We gotta be back. Go Don't ahead. go away. Every year, millions of Americans use opioids to manage pain. Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming, and all-consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit MoveForwardPT.com to find a physical therapist in your area. This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association. Mr. back on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, before we go too much further, I want to bring back our panel and uh, start with you, Phil Beverly. Um, 
Last week, there was some big news in the Democratic uh, primary. Uh, Barack Obama finally came out and endorsed uh, uh, Joe Biden. That was after uh, uh, Bernie Sanders had done the same thing. And then Elizabeth Warren jumped on the bandwagon uh, late in the week. Uh, what uh, what do these things mean, if anything, to uh, the likelihood of Joe Biden's success at being elected president? Um, I don't I don't know that the that the two are related. I think it's it's the endorsement of your party's presumptive nominee mm-hmm. by the former two time elected president yep. for whatever that holds. Joe Biden has got to be elected president based on who Joe Biden is, not because Barack Obama or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or anybody endorsed him. He's got to run, I would hope, a better campaign than Hillary Clinton ran in 2016. From a political standpoint, getting back to our last segment where we were discussing where the opposition, uh, at least from the streets to the elected governors, has come, Minnesota is one. Michigan is the other. I mean, it, it's it's taken place in Ohio as well, but but also in the state of Virginia. And the president has talked specifically about Virginia and Michigan and and Minnesota when he talks about liberation. But uh, Steve, uh, is is it just coincidental that those happen to be three uh, swing states that the president wants to win? <laughs> no. No. Listen, there is a difference. See, between now that's poli- there's gov- honesty. Now that's great. <laughs> uh, there is a difference between good government and good policy and tyranny. And what we are seeing in Michigan is tyranny. And that's just simple as it is. Brian outlined perfectly why it is tyranny. There's a disparity between those who are, by, by the way, if those in our state actually cared about us, where is our property tax relief? They have taken from us our ability to earn an income, and yet taxes continue. State workers are about to get another automatic raise. Ridiculous. Millions of dollars in automatic raises, and here we are without the ability to earn an income. So it is that disparity that brings about this uprising for people who are ticked off at what they're seeing. And there is tyranny in that state. There's tyranny in this state. One thing that I... Is that, does that tyranny somehow prevent the 2,308 deaths in Michigan from COVID-19 or the 31,000 people who tested positive for that? Is there any outrage on the part of those needing to be liberated from it for those who have succumbed to that? Every death is awful, Phil, including the death that your friends suffered from, Brian's friends suffered from, people that I know who have have been very sick. I was very sick in March. I was going to die. I have no idea what it was from. The point is, the two can be. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can have compassion for those who are suffering, but we also have to exercise that just common sense. You know when a governor is overreaching. If you value inherent natural rights, you know what's right and wrong. And this is what's leading this uprising. And I support it. I support all those people whose ability to earn an income has been taken from them. Now, let's talk about uh, loss of income. Brian, I'm going to let you start this discussion. Uh, One thing that has not been discussed is the definition of an essential worker. Do you think that do you think the definition of an essential worker has to be expanded when we move forward? Go ahead. I I don't like that the government is deciding who is essential and and based on what grounds that makes somebody essential. I mean, somebody who's working and earning money and feeding a large family, taking care of elderly and taking care of children, 
they're essential just by their existence, by their working, by their ability to earn money uh, in that case. And I know people that work in all kinds of industries that are considered essential, whether they can live. I did Uber driving in Chicago and I was taking healthcare workers over to some of the different uh, hospitals mm -hmm. because they don't, at the time, they didn't want to take public transportation. Uh, does that mean me as an Uber essential? I had to get people to work and they can't take the bus or the train. They don't own a car. What are they going to do? That's where I came in. Phil, so where, do, where do you, that. Phil, where do you weigh in on this? Weigh in on this. Do we so need to somebody's got to be essential and somebody's not going to be. Are you essential? Are you essential? Am I essential? Yeah. No, I'm working from home. I'm hating it and I'm working from home. Are there people at my organization who are essential? Absolutely. They're the doctors and nurses at the UI hospital right. who are treating the number sure. of patients that we have there. So I, in my organization, I'm not essential. In my organization, there are people who are. Our organization has decided who that is. But I was going to say, who makes that the decision, people though, your organization not, or the government? The, who do you trust to yeah. make that, uh, that decision uh, better? Since I'm I work for the state, you've already answered the question. Oh, you're right. I'm, okay. I'm not essential myself, but I'm going to get a marijuana license so I can become essential and help people get high. Or why, why not become a, a, a gun seller? They're essential that, in Illinois. Let me tell you. I love heads you off both. to Governor Pritzker on that. You know, credit where credit is due. Governor Pritzker understood the, the, the necessity of being able to defend yourself, especially when governors like him and others are letting criminals out of jail. Of course, you have to have a Second Amendment right. You have to protect it. So kudos. To and, Pritzker for doing and remember, the feds are letting people out of jail, too. Michael Cohen's getting out, and that's out of federal prison. So don't put it on the governors. And that so is sideways Democratic slap so in the face. Oh, Let's Brian, Brian Lambert. So Brian Lambert, too, I, I want I you to give credit to where credit is due. If, I, I, if I, they're I non-violent criminals, they should have been let out of prison long before this virus showed up. But these people sorry, are not, workers. a lot of them are not, a lot of them are not nonviolent. The guy in Florida was released, murdered someone the next day after he was relieved, relieved from prison. So this that's, is a mis that's a mistake. Was that from a Republican governor? Was that DeSantis that did that? One quick question. Uh, Who cares about the blame? Wait, 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 we, we, we've got to say, folks, folks, you're going, folks, you're going to have to, folks, hold it, hold it, you're going to, stop, 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 you're going to have to have a conference call with yourselves, we've got to say farewell to this group, Phil Beverly, thank you very much, our Democrat, our Republican, See Stephen Tucker, our libertarian, uh, has been Brian Lambrecht. In the next hour, we're going to be talking about the disparity of COVID-19 deaths in the black and brown communities of America. Don't go away. Gentlemen, thanks very much for a great first hour. I'm Bruce Dubot. We will continue after the news break. Thank you. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games, but I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope. Our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. 
He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours, that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Bruce Dumont back. Welcome to our number two of Beyond the Beltway this evening. And uh, much of America is uh, locked down in some respects, some uh, uh, greater lockdown than others. Uh, but there's only, I think, about five or six states now that, that are in a very minimal uh, lockdown situation. And uh, the president has said that uh, if everybody follows the guidelines uh, provided by the federal government, he's suggesting that they follow the guidelines, uh, some of these stay-at-home orders uh, and some of these quarantines around the country can be lifted if certain scientific criteria is is met. And in this hour, we're going to be joined by Teal Hardeman. He is a Democratic activist in the city of Chicago. He has run for mayor. He's run for governor. He's been unsuccessful, but he still works uh, in the uh, community and uh, black community trying to uh, reduce uh, violence in the black community. Alderman Ray Lopez joins us. He is from the 15th Ward, which is a uh, large ward of uh, both African-American and uh, Hispanics and others uh, in the mid part of the city. And Stephanie Trussell is a talk show host. She is of a very conservative bent, and uh, they... uh, make up our panel for uh, this week. And I'm going to start with uh, you, Alderman. Uh, what has been the reaction to the stay-at-home order? And are the people in the 15th Ward, are they getting restless 
with the anticipation that this thing is going to probably uh, uh, be extended uh, by the mayor for another month? Well, first off, good evening and um, good evening to the panel. I think many of my residents are getting frustrated because it seems to be a every three weeks we're getting a new update that it's going to take longer and longer. And I think what would have made this a lot easier for many people, not just in my ward or in my city, but across the country, is if we had uh, a more long-term plan to base all of our, our needs on. So you can make plans for your children, so you can make plans for your finances, so you can make plans for your job. And we haven't really been able to get to that point yet. But I think that it's safe to say that my residents understand the importance of social distancing and staying away from people at this point because of the way that this virus is spread. You know, you did mention, Bruce, that I do represent African-American and Latinos. And both of my, two of my four zip codes have been hit the hardest by COVID-19 in our city. And we see this continuing, particularly in the black community, where we're struggling to get the message out as we are having the success in other neighborhoods to stay home, don't go out needlessly because you don't know what you're gonna bring home. And as the city tries to come up with ways to engage, you know, we're finding that there's a lot of discrepancies in equality throughout the city's neighborhoods mm -hmm. that are hampering our efforts to put this yeah. virus down. Teal Hardeman, you've spent uh, virtually uh, your whole life, certainly as an, as an adult, uh, trying to improve the quality of life in the African-American community in Chicago. Uh, uh, how upset are they or frustrated are they? Uh, are they chomping at the bit to get outside and, and, and are they following uh, socially, social distancing at all? Yeah, that's a good question, Bruce. But let me make a clarification first. I've never ran for mayor here in Chicago as of yet. Which I never ran for mayor. I just put that out there. But anyway, to answer your question. Never know. Um, <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> so this was going on in the African-American community in Wisconsin, people that I talk to on a regular basis. Some people are rebellious. Uh, a lot of young guys out there. Uh, homicides are basically up and shootings up in Chicago, believe it or not. So that goes to show you there. Some of the young people are not even concerned about the stay-at-home order. I do not see a whole lot of people wearing masks in the youth population, within the youth population. But I see a lot of other people wearing their masks. But staying at home, I mean, a lot of people are off the streets. I have to say that. But when you're looking at a situation where people are living in poverty, people don't really have a lot, to, lot going on inside of their houses, and you tell them, telling the people to stay at home, it's a, it's a tough call for some people out here, Bruce. So we're doing our best to uh, educate young people. Uh, we have been distributing masks and gloves to young people, talking to the guys to the best of our ability, but the, uh, uh, the work continues. Let's put it like that. I want to get Stephanie uh, Trussell to weigh in on this. Uh, Stephanie, would you agree with uh, the assessment that Tio has just given of, of what life is like uh, in, in, in much of the black uh, and brown communities of Chicago? Well, um, I've been in the suburbs for uh, about 20 years, but I listen to urban talk radio every day, especially out of Chicago. So I'm mm -hmm. listening to what's happening. I'm listening to what the people are saying. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, in the beginning on social media, they were saying that um, there weren't very many cases in Africa. So we're um, maybe immune to this, all this misinformation that was going on. And um, I, I'm just surprised because one of the most underlying factors, one of the biggest underlying factors in the people that unfortunately die of this is obese, obesity. And of course, we know diabetes, um, asthma, and other um, high blood pressure are a big issue with the Black community. Now, we can spend time talking about why that seems to be prevalent in our community. But 
it's just really sad to me that um, the problem with, is that most black people live in the city in, in urban areas. It's not just Chicago. When the mayor came out and said 72% of the victims that have died are um, were black and that she was immediately going to put out a rapid response team to uh, you know, address those most vulnerable. Meaning, I would I thought she was talking about the the black community, but the next day she signed an executive order making sure illegals get the benefits and treatments. And so, you know, it's unfortunate that this incident is is being politicized, especially in in the city of Chicago and Chicago land, and by our governor and and our and the mayor of Chicago. And it just breaks my heart that this is the time we should be talking about coming together and that it's, for some reason they seem to think that the black people need a separate, um, uh, you have to be addressed separately instead of saying your Americans follow all the rules that everybody's following, but they want, how is this disproportionately affecting our community? Well, we have to think about why we are not following along because a lot of the times we've been trained to, to, to rely on big government for everything. We need them to, to make a decision. For, we need everything. So let's this get, has been, um, I, 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 I want to Teal to, to weigh in on one, I, Teal and, and Ray to weigh in on one thing, because what followed that, that initial uh, revelation by uh, Mayor uh, Lightfoot in Chicago, and then other, it became part of the national story from that moment on, uh, the disparity uh, of, of, the, of the deaths from COVID-19 uh, in cities all over the United States. But it's, it seems to me that at the core of this is a, it's a health issue. It, it isn't just a, a lack of uh, access to medical help. That certainly is part of it. No question about it. But the issue of obesity and diabetes, I mean, these are things that, that, that public health people have known about and, and, and leaders in the African-American community, you've known about that for 50 years. Have you not, Teal? You know, the issue of uh, underlying health problems exists in all communities, though. Of the but there's higher percentages there's in no, the black, uh, there's higher percentages in the black community of, of diabetes and, and, and obesity. That's correct. That's correct. That's proven by data. Yes. But let me say this much to you. A lot of younger African-American men in particular, they feel that they're invincible. That's why they're out there. We have a 46% unemployment rate for African-American young men between the ages of 17 and 30 right now in Chicago. So, you know, the young guys, they're going to find themselves out there on the streets anyway because they don't have nowhere to go. So that's an issue there, but a lot of younger people are not dying from COVID-19. It's the middle-aged and the older people that have some existing health issues without a doubt. But it's an educational process. It's all about education. And sometimes we don't see the proper education. We don't have the resources, number one, that would allow us to go and get the best of health, uh, medical help. Uh, I want to come back. I want to get uh, Alderman Lopez to weigh in on that. And we're going to see if we can improve the quality of, of your audio a little bit, uh, Tio. It's a little... Uh, it's a little tinny, but we're going to try to work on it. Uh, thank you very much for joining us tonight. We'll be back with our guest in this conversation. I'm Bruce Dumont, live from Evanston, Illinois. This message is from the National Council on Aging. Adults over age 60 are at higher risk for the COVID-19 coronavirus because they may have weaker immune systems or chronic health conditions. The Centers for Disease Control recommends older adults avoid crowds and people who are sick. Wash your hands and disinfect surfaces often. Keep a two-week supply of food and medicine on hand. Learn more at ncoa.org. 
A few years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us. The president's uh, uh, coronavirus uh, update is over for the day. And uh, one of the things announced is that 22 states are going to begin phase one of reopening tomorrow. 22 states will begin the fa- will begin phase one of reopening tomorrow. And again, your local news will let you know whether your state is included. But here are states that are not included, not included. And they are uh, Washington, Oregon, California, New Mexico, Nebraska, Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, Georgia, and Louisiana, as well as the entire uh, North Carolina, as well as the entire uh, uh, New England and, and Middle Atlantic states. South Carolina is included to uh, to be open tomorrow. So is Florida, but the other, they're part of the 22. But again, the ones I just mentioned, they are not. I know we have a lot of listeners in California and Illinois and Michigan, and again, uh, they will not be included in the phase one that begins tomorrow. Uh, Ray Lopez, I want to come back to you. As we mentioned, uh, uh, longtime alderman in, in Chicago, uh, pick up on the on the point that Teal was making about uh, the, the, the lack of... Uh, of, of health awareness as well as health availability in uh, the inner cities of Chicago or any, any city. Well, I think what's important to realize is that all of the disinvestment that we've seen, not just as of late, but for decades, probably going back to the 1960s has come home to roost now in this pandemic. The fact that we've so disinvested in the black community and we find them in a spot, not just in Chicago, but throughout many parts of this country, unable to attack the virus as we would any other community um, should be the eye-opening moment for this country. When you expect and tell people, wash your hands, and many individuals can't do that because they lack running water in the United States, in their community, that is a problem. When they lack access to the most basic of things like grocery stores, food, anything other than the corner store that sells them chips and a nacho as a meal, when you expect them to live on that, all of these things are going to come to a point, to a head at some point. And this pandemic, this COVID-19 has brought that out tenfold. And I think, you know, Stephanie and I, the first time we met, we talked about what kind of investments have gone on in the Black community. I think we even talked about the West Side at one point and how it hasn't changed much. You know, all of that disinvestment after decades is now being seen live and in real time what is not there, what the people of those communities don't have access to, so that it's not just mass, it's not just message, and it's not just jobs, it's the basics of humanity that we've deprived the Black community. And to Teal's point, the young bucks that are out there right now, these are gentlemen who otherwise have given up on the value of their own life, who know that I might not make it to 21 on a normal day, What's COVID-19 going to do to me? And in West Englewood, which I represent, we had three shootings yesterday. The, the smallest shooting had nine rounds and two victims. This is going on every day mid-pandemic. 
So, you know, to think that just because there's a, a crisis of health going on, that anyone thinks that their life has any longer of a value or a time span to it will just be a fallacy. And if we don't counter that point as well, part of the long term, the short term of stopping COVID will fail. Stephanie, your reaction to that? Well, you know, I've been listening to the mayor of Chicago, and she said that even if the black community had equality to access to health care, we would still have a greater, um, you know, the death rate, uh, our life expectancy is a lot lower than the white counterparts in Chicago. She said because of the violent neighborhoods we live in and because of the stress that we live in. This is what Lori Lightfoot said about the black community. So my question, when they say we don't have access, I disagree with that because I know what the conditions are in the city. But we have access if we make a decision that maybe the city, maybe urban environments are not good for black people because all we hear about more likely to be shot, more likely, less likely to get quality education. We have access to all of that if we make a decision that I want to move somewhere where uh, the quality of life is so much better. And it's unfortunate. We talk about food deserts. There's no access to fresh food. Well, who's been running the city since the 30s? It is. Um, it has been the Democrat Party. We have a progressive mayor. We have a progressive government. I would think black people would be in the best of hands because they keep telling us how much they care about us. I don't, I don't understand that suddenly we're talking about us come home to roost. Well, when are we going to hold these people accountable to say, hey, why aren't there grocery stores in my community? Why, why can't I just walk to get fresh fruit and have something other than a liquor store selling, as you said, um, nachos and, and potato chips for breakfast. That's Teal, unfortunately, Teal, what's, we your, do have access- Teal, what's your answer to Go that ahead. question? Then the point of uh, access, the argument would be then you have people that have been left behind, so to speak. You have people that are living in extreme levels of poverty. Sometimes educational levels do not allow people to step up and say what they need all the time. People just don't feel safe within the system. They're not they're not familiar with going to get out to going out to receive and secure help sometimes, Bruce. That's what happens. Understand this. Former President George Bush Jr. predicted the pandemic about 15 years ago. Everybody should look up the speech that he gave about 15 years ago about a pandemic that would hit the United States and how we would not be prepared to handle the pandemic. But we have an epidemic of gun violence taking place. The numbers are you know, pretty much staggering. So just imagine if we would place the same amount of resources that we place it into COVID-19 to address reducing gun violence, we might just get somewhere in Chicago, Bruce. So a lot of people are dealing with health issues, for sure. I'm a man, just like any other man. I'm an African-American man. Now, the thing is, I go to the doctor at least twice a, twice a year. I tell my for my physical checkups. Some people don't have health insurance, Bruce. They're not going to the doctor. And most guys feel like, look, I deal with it. I can just survive. But here's That's my, Teal, here's, here's my question. And answer this for, I think, probably a lot of people listening uh, to this program. Are there not public health facilities in the inner cities of, of all of, of major cities, not just Chicago, because we got people listening all over the country. Are there not inner city public uh, uh, health facilities where someone could go in and get a checkup or, or do they only go in? Can they only go in when, when, uh, when they are sick or when they are shot? I mean, what, what's, what is being done to communicate to the African-American communities that they have to take some responsibility for their own health 
And and definitely, while these other issues, the food desert issue is being dealt with, I couldn't agree with you more on that. But what is the personal responsibility? It's like the personal responsibility not to shoot your neighbor because he's in a different gang or he's wearing a a, a different uh, you know different colors that day. Where, where is that message coming from? And 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 is there a frustration because you've been working at it all your life? Is there a frustration that basically everything you've been working on for 25, 30 years seems to be falling on deaf ears, Teal? This is the thing, Rules, not to say this on your show only, Beyond the Beltway. The main solution to reducing gun violence in Black Chicago is overall Black unity. If the Black community does not unify from the bottom to the top, we will continue to deal with this epidemic of gun violence. And I say that because the black is incumbent upon black men to organize within their communities on a higher level. Number one, rules. Number two, if guys are unemployed, they won't even go out to try to uh, secure a job. They think they're going to go to a public facility, public health facility. So to answer your question, most people go to get any help unless they're sick, unless they get shot. That's just the way it goes. Now, we're doing our best to educate people. But don't get me wrong, Christopher just opened up a facility on the south and west side where people can be tested at a higher level now. So there's a lot of work being done, but the bottom line is that then you have some people they cannot get out. You have older people, African-American, the resource to get out and go get tested. I mean, you have Gee, a lot what, of what a multitude do. of issues that are barriers for people in our community. Okay, I want to I want to go over to Ray Lopez, and also I'm going to suggest to our producer, Andrew Marshall, uh, during this upcoming commercial break, I want to see if there's some way we can reconnect with Tio because the quality of your audio uh, is 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 very difficult to understand. the 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 brilliance of your of your of your argument is always good, Tio. But again, we're having a little difficult with the sound quality. And again, I'm, we're going to ask if we can maybe reconnect this phone conversation. But let's wait until we get to the commercial break. Ray, let me come back to you because you mentioned that uh, you know you uh, two of the uh, Zip codes in your ward are, are two of the highest for COVID-19 in the city of Chicago. My question to you uh, would be, Are you? Um, uh, what is being done to deal with the undocumented workers in your wards? And are, are they coming forward? Or do you think that they will be afraid to come forward to be tested? Well, I think it's been the failure of the city of Chicago um, in particular, um, not to put this information out in multiple languages. You know, I know some of your listeners are very much, you know, pro-English only or things of that nature, but I will tell you that, you know, throughout this country, not just Chicago, many people are comfortable in a foreign language or only know a foreign language and the failure of any health emergency, not to put everything in all the languages that are spoken out there, particularly in high risk, uh, immigrant communities, uh, could have disastrous effects. And it took the city of Chicago itself three and a half weeks before the first documents were actually translated into Spanish, let alone any of the seven languages required by our language access law. And I think that is important because of the fact that oftentimes, you know, whether it's undocumented or, you know, descendants of immigrants or whomever, you know, those are usually the ones who are working those essential jobs, those loading jobs, those grocery store jobs that need to hear the message on how to protect themselves first and foremost, how to protect their families and how to protect their customers, especially in states like ours where we've deemed certain businesses to remain open and essential. Mm -hmm. But if we fail to get the information to them in a language they can understand and appreciate and comply with, 
it just makes that situation all, the, all that we, harder. When we come back, I want to get uh, from you, Alderman, the, the economic impact. We've talked about the public health issue. I want to talk about the economic impact and, and whether Illinois gets open and uh, whether the, uh, the small mom-and-pop shops that, that line your the streets in your ward, uh, whether they're going to make it or not. We will do that when we continue. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. Hi, this is Dr. Phil. The new coronavirus called COVID-19 is spreading in China and beyond. While CDC is working to stop the spread of the virus, we can all play a role in stopping this deadly disease. The CDC Foundation is a nonprofit organization supporting emergency response efforts in the United States and around the world. To get updates and learn how to protect friends and loved ones, find out how to help by going to cdcfoundation.org. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Schumann back. Thanks very much for joining us tonight on Beyond the Beltway from coast to coast and border to border. And uh, I want to take a moment and let our guests introduce themselves. And we're going to begin with uh, Stephanie Trussell. Tell everybody who you are, Stephanie. I'm Stephanie Trussell, native of Chicago, born and raised there. But in 1994, I moved to DuPage County and um, I was on the radio for seven and a half years. Um, right now, I happen to be on um, staff with the Jeannie Ives campaign. She's running in my district. And so I'm very excited for the first time to be working with a campaign and getting the word out that we're trying to take back the six. I mm-hmm. um, love Chicago's feel, even though I left a few years ago and I'm out constantly trying to fight for, um, for people that look like me to vote like me. Okay. And Ray Lopez, tell us a little bit about your uh, illustrious history in the 15th Ward. Uh, good evening, Bruce. I'm Alderman Raymond Lopez in Chicago's 15th Ward. I represent uh, about 56,000 individuals on the city's southwest side, most notably known for the back of the yards by the stockyards, Brighton Park and West Englewood. I've been elected since 2012 as a Democratic committeeman, party leader, Uh, elected alderman in 2015, re-elected in 2019 again, and uh, probably the the defender of democracy here in the city of Chicago. Let me ask, is Teal, are you back on the air, Teal, or are we still trying to reconnect with you? Well, he's not there, so let me go back to Ray. Let me ask you a political question. Last week, Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren all uh, finally uh, jumped on the bandwagon to support uh, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, uh, I think you had supported uh, Biden prior to that. Uh, Is this going to have any significant effect uh, in November, or has this campaign just been... uh, so overwhelmed by COVID-19 that it's going to be hard to put together any semblance of a political campaign. Well, I think both parties are going to have an issue when it comes to trying to solidify their base and energize people in the in the era of COVID-19. You know, both parties were planning on national conventions. I don't know how you do that virtually now. Um, I think, you know, particularly as it comes as it relates to Biden, you know, it's interesting to see all of the party stalwarts come to his come to his aid come to his endorsements uh list but you see people like AOC and others who are like well we'll see 
I haven't made up my mind yet. And they're all hesitant now to move forward with Biden. But when it was Bernie who was on the upswing, they were adamant about you have to support the nominee, whomever that person is, for the good of the party. And now the shoe's on the other foot and they forgot how to dance. So Mm -hmm. we'll see what happens. Yeah. Let me go back to the question I posed uh, prior to the break. And that is when we talk about uh, how the federal government is, is, is providing money uh, to, to businesses to survive, uh, a lot of the big bucks obviously are going to the big industries. Uh, the payroll protection is, is going to small businesses uh, or the individual uh, worker. And then obviously there's, there's other large sums of money that are going to, to smaller businesses. First of all, uh, in in your uh, area, and I'm going to ask this to either one of you, uh, but I'll ask start with you, Ray. Uh, when people think of small mom and pop uh, uh, industries, if you walk through your neighborhood or the other uh, Hispanic uh, neighborhoods in Chicago and some black communities as well, but much more in the Hispanic community, you're going to see all kinds of small mom and pop shops. Do you know whether they have received any support? Uh, at thus far from the federal government? Um, I know there's been a, a, an effort, at least by my, my, my office, my team, and our partners to try and get information out to the small businesses. I think I've said on this program before, I have about 450 to 500 small businesses, of which maybe less than 50 are considered essential, which means a vast majority of my business are definitely going to be negatively impacted by uh, COVID-19. Um, that said, we have seen many of them apply for like the small business administration's $2 million grants and things of that nature. And none of them that I'm aware of have made any successful progress in getting loans secured by the federal government. And what worries me is that we continue to see larger bailouts for bigger industries, which is understandable. But small business makes the heart and soul of this country, not just in my my city, my ward, but across the entire nation. And if we're not truly putting dollars to protect those mom and pop businesses, those restaurant owners, those hardware stores, those small businesses that drive economies big and small, you know, we might have a harder road of recovery than we are prepared for at this point. Stephanie, do you know where there is success with receiving some of these federal funds? I don't know anyone that, that's received anything, including myself, I might add. Well, it's so interesting you would ask me that. My husband's job, he's a consultant, and he's been helping people um, navigate their way through this process. And he's had a lot of successful clients that have secured those loans and um, and have gotten the money. I don't know um, exactly what his success rate is, but he has um, kind of reallocated and, and made it his job is to learn uh, all the different ways of loops. And, you know, it just breaks my heart that the government and our local government, each state has the ability to do this, has decided what's essential and what's not essential. Even in my area, a restaurant that's been around for 35 years says we're gone for good. They couldn't survive this. And I think um, it's unfortunate that uh, the, however they arbitrarily came up with the idea of what's essential and what's not essential. Like my son, he's 15. He has braces. It's time for the braces to come off. His orthodontist canceled our appointment, but you can still get an abortion in the state of Illinois. That just blows me away. They restricted liquor store sales, but you, the pot marijuana stores or whatever, those are open. So to pick and choose what essential what's not essential uh, it's really unfortunate when you live in a state what like would Illinois add, that politicizing what, what, this thing what would what would you add to the list of essential you've 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 made your point about marijuana shops uh and and the orthodontist but I mean, what other things do you think should be added to essential services in Chicago 
Well, I think retail stores in general, what's the difference between Walmart and Michaels? It's the same thing. If you're using and exercising the common measures of safe um, distances, what's the big deal? So why can um, you know Target be open, but Joanne Fabrics can't be open? Why can't retail stores just open? Now, restaurants, that's a different issue. But I mean, we have to slowly get back to normal. And it's just not fair to people that you know, built their businesses, worked really hard. And now the government's saying that you're not essential and you can't open your business. And therefore, a lot of these businesses will go out of business for good. And that's unfortunate. Teal, let me, uh, I understand you're back in the conversation. So let me uh, pick up and ask that same question to you. Are there, are there businesses now in the black community that are listed as non-essential that you think should be essential? Well, not necessarily. Thing I can tell you the liquor stores are still open. I don't see the liquor stores being essential, number one. Uh, the grocery stores are still open. The gas stations are open. So I cannot say that some of the businesses that should be seen as essential uh, should. I mean, I, I think most of the essential businesses are open to answer your question directly. What now, about, bar, what about barbershops? What about barbershops and getting your hair cut? I believe barbershops should be open, but the uh, barber should uh, set up his appointments with his uh, clientele one person at a time or no more than two people in the shop at a time. I definitely agree with the barbershop. I know a lot of barbers that are going under right now. And the coronavirus right. is not just killing people, it's killing businesses all over Chicagoland and across our nation. I'm talking about small businesses are suffering more than any other business in the world right now. Ray, there's been a lot of controversy, as you know, but those people around the country may not know that uh, Mayor Lightfoot snuck out and got her hair styled <laughs> because she represents uh, the, the face of Chicago. Uh, she got into a lot of trouble for that. But, I mean, do you think that barbershops and uh, hair salons should be uh, uh, deemed essential businesses? You know, there are a lot of businesses that we need to look at. But I'm going to go back to something that I think I said last time on the show, which yeah. is that, you know, I don't think the president went far enough when he left, didn't close the borders. Yes. And I'm going to say this about our governors, that I don't think they went far enough when they didn't order a full lockdown, two-week quarantine so that we could have gotten through this quicker. All of the businesses that we're talking about that are struggling, not just the barbershops, not just the beauty salons, 60% of your restaurants will never open again because of how the, the time frame that they'll be out of business. Many workers will not have jobs by the time this is over with if it ends June 1st, and that's with full mitigation. We should have went on full lockdown from the very beginning so that we could have contained this that the virus could have run its course and that we could have kept it from spreading anywhere else, but we didn't. And what I think is dangerous, no offense to my fellow panelists, is that if we start talking about how we're going to start opening up certain sectors, and I know there are people who are hurting, but if we're talking about how we're going to open things up, we run the risk of dragging this out even further and seeing a resurgence of COVID-19 round two, because if we're not letting people, as Teal said, you know, you could open a barbershop, but you have to have restrictions, you know, appointments, only one person at a time, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. But we know even right now that there are non-essential businesses operating out the back door. We know that there are things going on in every city across the country where things are going on, not as we're intended by the mitigation efforts. And if we expect people who see some light at the end of the tunnel to be patient and wait their turn, it's not going to happen. I go back to a question I started uh, the discussion with, and that is uh, the, the restlessness of the people that, that you deal with. I mean, do you expect, uh, I mean, if, if for the next, uh, let's say the mayor extends, uh, you know, the current situation in Chicago for another month, 
and the governor extends it for a couple of months because we've not met the criteria as set forth uh, by the federal government. I mean, do you think, um, uh, is there going to be, uh, is there going to be rebellion? Is there a possibility of rebellion out there? I'll let you start with this, uh, Tio. Yeah, there's always a possibility of rebellion because if you're talking about extending the stay-at-home, you know, order for the next month or a couple of months, I mean, a lot of people are really surviving on the bare, bare uh, essentials right now. A lot of people don't have bottled water. People don't have canned goods. You know, you, that would create a real serious problem, possibly. I mean, and I, I must say this because at the same time, then you're going to have other people coming out of the house other than just the younger people that's unemployed out there. A lot of people just cannot survive another two months on a stay-at-home order. It's going to be, it might uh, present a real serious imminent danger here uh, right. in Chicago, like it's presenting in some other states right now where right. we've seen people that and took the arms and they were protesting the stay-at-home order. So hopefully not, Bruce, but there's always a possibility okay. uh, right now because people are really we got, doing we got, their we best to We've got to pause. I'm Bruce Dumont. We'll continue with our guests in a moment. Every year, millions of Americans use opioids to manage pain. Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming, and all-consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit MoveForwardPT.com to find a physical therapist in your area. This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway, and we're getting some uh, emails in. And here's a, uh, a listener who says, uh, sort of pointedly, I call BS on the suggestion folks don't have running water. I think you said that, Alderman. Uh, it means sure they wouldn't have toilets either. And then there is also an inequality, uh, but it ain't. But it, it it isn't caused by that. Black machismo machismo means hanging out at liquor stores, playing basketball games, and not wearing face coverings. Can't be told what to do. All against flattening the curve. So let me start with you, Alderman. Uh, really, places in Chicago with no running water. Uh, Bruce, the city of Chicago had a wonderful policy that Mayor Lightfoot finally put to an end. It was. That if you didn't pay your bills, your water was cut off. And anyone who thinks that people's water wasn't still being cut off before COVID-19 obviously doesn't know our city. In Englewood, we had organizations that were literally filling up 105-gallon containers to provide water to families because they had no running water in their properties. So, yes, it is not BS. It is true. Just because you've never seen a 21st century home without running water doesn't mean it's not doesn't exist. Okay. Well, Hardiman, wouldn't it make more sense? Go ahead. I, I don't know. I'm Stephen. just thinking it would make more sense instead of filling up hundred gallon water to help these people figure out a way to pay their bills because it's just not fair. You can, you but, have to impose some kind of limit. If you don't pay your bills, 
I'm sorry, you, you, you know, that's what happens. And so what's the situation that these people are in that they can't pay a water bill? And that's just, that's just what life is. And it, we're, it's unfortunately, it seems like we need a permanent underclass. We need the black community has this permanent victimhood set on us by the Democrat Party that we're we need them to get everything in life. This country wasn't made for them, wasn't developed for them. We got to get rid of that mentality. This is the greatest country in the world because my ancestors and TOs helped build this country. It is our country, and we need to be living the American dream and not being told that oh, this country. What about what about the Democrat Party? What about the comment? And I'm going to tell you are, you, are you there? Can you still hear us? Yeah, I can still hear you okay, real, real let, good. Let, let's go back to this comment. This is this is a person who's describing what he perceives to be the cultural uh, issue that's out there, and it's uh, black machismo, which is hanging out on stores, playing in front of liquor stores, basketball games, no jobs. He didn't say that. Not wearing face coverings, and just can't they can't be told what to do. These 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 are young people, not all black, but there's a lot of young people. They just they re, they reject authority. They're never they're never going to do anything for the good of public health. Well, that's not necessarily true, Bruce. Because the first hot day we had in Chicago, you had people from all different ethnic groups hanging out at the lakefront. The mayor had to make a real strong statement to get people to get off the lakefront. So it's she not shut, just a, she a shut she shut down the lakefront, right. Right. Okay. And we had all kinds of people out there. So that's not the case. What's happening in the African-American community is that we have what you call a whole lot, a whole lot of problems when it comes down to. Um, We're running a real bad signals, Teal. Go ahead. I'm sorry about these signals. I'm, gonna, I'm back now because I had to sign on. Hello. Okay. Okay. Well, Bruce, if I could say while connected also. Say that it's not connected. It's not just limited to the black community. We have plenty of young Latinos who are running around the neighborhoods acting a fool too, despite being told to stay home, despite being told to wear masks. But is you know, the issue here that let, 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 let's bring Ray into the conversation. You know, this person is, is, is painting a picture, which I believe is a picture that a lot of people would, would, would probably agree with. And that's a lot of blacks standing on the corner because they don't have a job. They're standing in front of the liquor store, which now closes at nine o'clock in Chicago, and uh, they're playing basketball and uh, they may be smoking dope, whatever it is, but they're the, but they're not wearing a mask, and it's it's a cultural thing that's not going to change, no matter how much Lori Lightfoot or or the president or anybody else or you say about it. Would you acknowledge you know, that I, that's I, a problem? They don't want, at, they don't like I, authority. Period. When I look at the people, Bruce, they were at the Liberate Vermont, Liberate all those rallies. Yeah, they weren't. They weren't African American. They were white. So it's right. not just a, a pension on the black community to defy authority, because a lot of white males and white females were defying authority. Also, I agree with that. I think restlessness is what's defying. But if we drove through, That's if we drove, if we drove through black and brown communities tonight after the show, right? Because we've we've lost uh, Tio. I don't know what's happening with the signal, but we lost him. <laughs> If you drove through black and brown communities tonight, would you see more than 10 people standing on the corner waiting for something to happen? I'm sure you could find a cluster of people in any neighborhood. I would, I will honestly say, yes, you will find them in my community, black, black and brown communities. But to Tio's point, you also had hundreds of them who were neither of those colors yes. up and down Lincoln Park in the north side. No question you about have, it. 
you have people who, regardless of color, will always continue to do their own thing in defiance of what we as authority figures tell people to do. That's not unique to Chicago. We see that all across this country where there are still people with the mantra of oh, uh, back to work America hashtags and, oh, uh, and, and the uh, uh, lockdown. You know, people are so eager to get back out. People are so eager to show that they are the ones in control of their own destiny. I think you had this conversation with your panelists before us that, you know, when is your right to be free impeding my right to be healthy? So... Okay. Stephanie, last word to you. we got 20 seconds. Go ahead. Take it. Well, well, I'm just really concerned about the kids in Chicago public schools. They lost 11 days of instruction back in the fall with that greedy uh, um, strike that the teachers union imposed on them. They're just now getting computers. And that's unfortunate. That's another system that fails poor black uh, children is that my school district, we've had um, laptops or um, computers all along, so it was very easy to go ahead and get start edu- educating the kids online. And that's, it's just, it's really sad that almost every issue that af- disproportionately affect, affects black people negatively living in an urban environment. And it's just, it's just really sad. When are we gonna wake up and realize that maybe urban environments are not great for black people and for poor okay. people? Okay, on that note, we are out of time. Uh, Stephanie Trestle, talk show host, thank you very much. Uh, does a lot of work here at uh, WIND. Ray Lopez of the 15th Ward. Ray, thank you very much. Tio Hardiman, we thank you very much. But uh, I don't know what happened to your signal tonight. But again, Tio Hardiman has joined us as well. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks to Andrew Marshall. We'll be back next week. See you then. Good night from Evanston, Illinois.